Welcome to The Story Thinker, a Webtoons and Witcher podcast for superfans with scene-by-scene analysis. Featuring sharp co-hosts for a fuller picture, we dive deep into character psychology, relationships, and theories. We'd love it if you could like, subscribe, comment, and rate us on all podcast platforms and social media. For bonus content, you can support The Story Thinker on Patreon. Let's begin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 124 of Purple Hyacinth, Grievous Gift, and we are with Veronica F. Woo. Hello. <laughs> Although you, you should be able to guess that food would be here because it has Bellarcy or Bella in it. And yeah. that equals food. So <laughs> come hello. Yeah. I got awoken from my little crypt for the Bellarcy <laughs> episode or just the hint of Bella. Mm-hmm. I, I remember you signed up for that one episode because there was like one panel of like, Bella. yeah. <laughs> um, because I've had like a lot of school stuff lately I've restricted myself to only coming on for like the Bella and Darcy stuff (laughs) and then there was that one episode and I was like I was fighting with myself on whether I should come on or uh, or not and I think I came on (laughs) Mindy said oh always a pleasure (laughs) all right so yeah this episode has a lot and uh, we're all excited to get into it because there's a lot of content a lot of as you said, through world building. So, mm. yeah. All right, so we start out with your favorite character. Uh, yeah, oh, she is, that's accurate. Bella is my favorite character. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So she's in her trailer and she is dressed very classy because the lady has impeccable fashion. And she is on a stool reading the note that from a while ago, um, Darcy slipped under her pillow. So she, we just see the note, we see her looking at it, and she crumples it up and throws it into the waste basket. Totally unsurprising. <laughs> I, every, okay, we just had like the sequel circus arc. I spent every single one of those episodes hoping it would end with Bella finding, like Bella coming home and finding the note underneath her pillow. Finally, <laughs> finally. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it's funny because I asked on the Discord, I was like, what was on the note? And you you said what you thought was on the note, which, and if you want to go ahead and say it. Um... Uh, yeah, I think I think it's basically a copy or if not the same note from episode 89, um, which is when we saw Darcy and Bella interact really for the first time following mm-hmm. uh, Bella finding her in her house um, in episode 88. And so in that no, I'm pretty sure it was an address to meet up because uh, Darcy needed help with something. We don't really know what yet, but she went to Bella for help. And so I'm pretty sure the note was an address for them to meet up. And I wouldn't be surprised if this iteration of the note had maybe like some more like context to it, like just about uh, Darcy being like, hey, I need your help or something. And she signs it, you know, because the other note did have her initials on it. And that's all we really see of what's actually right. inside of it. Actually, I'm but, looking yeah. at that episode again now, right? It has an NED and then it says, here's the location we can meet again. Yeah. So I think this is Darcy's second attempt <laughs> at meeting. Which um, is going over so well. Yeah. <laughs> really. Bella looks very excited about helping Nira out. Yeah. But it's fine. Even if Bella like doesn't accept this reunion, this episode does set up another one, which I cannot wait to talk about. <laughs> yeah. How many, how many letters will she toss in the trash before she finally agrees to meet her? 
It's like, hey, did you get any of my emails? <laughs> I'm no, calling I'm you. Okay. <laughs> Message blocked or this number is no longer in service. Delete, delete. <laughs> yeah, Darcy's probably like in a modern, like alternate universe. Darcy probably has like a list of alternate accounts because Bella keeps blocking her. <laughs> I love that theory. I want to make that canon in the multiverse. It's perfect. I just reminded me, oh my gosh, when I was 18, 19, 19, 18, I can't remember. One of those. Um, there was a guy and <laughs> there was a guy communicated and we were supposed to go out and then and then he changed his mind the last minute, which turns out was because of my parents. I found out years <laughs> later, whatever, long <laughs> drama story. But um I ended up like I wanted to send him something, but I didn't want him to know it was me. So I made a whole new email account just for him. And I sent him something that I thought he would appreciate. And he was like, oh, thank you. You know, this is nice. It was like some meme. He's like, who is this? And I was like, I don't want to tell you. (laughs) Really? Why not? Why don't you tell me? And I just never answered. And like now it's like, I don't know, 12 years later, whatever. Now we're friends. Like all of us are friends because, you know, didn't work out with him. But I married my husband and now we're all friends because we're very similar. Like he was very similar to my husband. And we're like, the guy has the same interests. So and yeah, so I have like, I should message him and tell him, remember like 12, 13, 14 years ago, that person, who email address, that was me. <laughs> yeah, Let me open it up right now, actually, so I don't forget. I'm going to, oh, I can't, hold on. I'm going to open up that message and start a message to him. So I, I did not forget that. I was <laughs> tell him what I did as a 19 year old. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So Bella and, and, you know, uh, Darcy and me, basically, the same person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Truly, truly. <laughs> Darcy Kenny and it. <laughs> the life imitates art. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's why we like the story, right? Because it reflects real people and how they act. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to our other conversation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so now we have um, the seventh's office. We have Redcliffe's office, and we see Le- uh, Bella leaning against the bookcase. And just from her posture, you can tell she looks contemplative. She looks like she is thinking about something serious. Mm-hmm. She doesn't look too happy either. Yeah. It's a very intense stare in that scene. Like, mm-hmm. and I have to say, I'm always living for whenever we get a glimpse of number seven. Um, just because it's like, oh, it's that it's that juicy secret that like um because all the apostles are kept under wraps every time every time I see one of the apostles I'm just like yes more info that that need is being satisfied mm-hmm. and it's re- I love the expression on her face though because it really is kind of hard to discern if she's kind of like it almost looks like she's observing or testing or waiting for some information from seven in the conversation but because of the note it could also be a combination of that and putting the note together mm-hmm. um so I, I really think that the skills and illustration um have just continued to excel in terms of close-up shots because it does convey a lot of emotion mm-hmm. I, I love your analysis of that because right now my main thought is like oh my god she's wearing pink eyeliner <laughs> that's just her wow. hair the eyeliner is fly. Let's be clear about that yeah. too. <laughs> um, you know, it's yeah. interesting. I'm sorry. sorry go please go. You can go. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'll go. Um, 
yeah, at what you were saying, Veronica, about her expression, I think that it's very appropriate for Bella, particularly for her expression to be a little inscrutable because she's a character, like when, we, when she was first introduced and for much of the time that we had with her in the beginning, we all thought she was just a cold-hearted assassin. Like that's the front that she puts up, like no crack. And only when we got that episode with Nera did we finally see like there's vulnerability, there's emotion, but she still doesn't, she hasn't shown us her moral compass yet, right? Like either she has no moral compass and she really is what she says, which is completely flippant and disregarding of human life, or she's really, really hiding it very well. But so the fact that her expression is inscrutable to me just really reflects where we are in this point in the story where we don't know yet what Bella is all about. Like we don't know what she's thinking. We don't know what she's feeling. She's a complex character now, which is cool. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah. Bella probably had my favorite character arc of season two and going into season three, I think she continues to hold that spot just because of the evolution of her character. But I don't know if I would agree on, we don't really know her moral compass. I think there definitely is some vagueness to it right now, but I think we're definitely starting to see more of her values and her priorities within those values. And so we, uh, in season one, as you guys were discussing, we, really only saw Bella as like you know she looks out for herself and no one else like she would probably betray Kieran in a heartbeat uh if it if her job demanded it or if it suited the needs of whatever her new mission was but as we saw in season two that relationship with Kieran definitely does go a lot deeper than initially thought and especially going into season three with episode 115 where they brought (laughs) Fleming's body to the morgue um and uh, Lauren has been asking Kieran about Bella and we know that they have like some sort of pact and uh, we saw with Darcy how there's a history between them and Darcy uh, sorry Bella would actually put uh, Nera over Apostle Seven who she has probably known a lot longer and who practically raised her at, um, since she was an orphan you know raised her for like the last 15 years so that's like a very big, um, I guess, shift in what we and how we kind of perceived Bella, because she was making it very clear that she would choose someone that she cared about over someone who was closely affiliated to her job. I co-sign that. I totally co-sign that. And I like how you were talking just now, and um, it it brought to mind uh, for me the parallels that you see kind of in terms of while we're seeing her uh while we're seeing her dynamic with Kieran fleshed out a little more there's also this parallel too of her with her personal life and that moral compass is being illustrated from both sides and it's going to be interesting to see how maybe hopefully in a couple episodes uh, we'll see how that kind of meshes together and maybe we'll see a more rounded out mm-hmm. and defined uh, moral compass from there. Absolutely. I, this episode really sets up a lot of things, particularly with Bella's character. And yeah. it does so in a way that when I was reading this, I was like, oh, the creators are so slick. They're yeah. so slick. Okay, so I have some theories on where the story is headed, but we have to go through the scene, yeah. like the scene to talk about it, but yeah, okay, so let's do that. Um, so while she's waiting with her arms crossed, not looking very excited, we have a clack and we have a 
<laughs> very dapper gentlemen walk in okay like i know we don't like redcliffe but like mm, he knows how to dress yeah <laughs> well you know she learned face. it from him right they both uh <laughs> like father like daughter i guess uh, yeah i ju- i just um drew both of them actually for the ph anniversary event and so when i saw this episode and i saw him walk in i was like my timing is so good but also drawing him like it kind of gave me more appreciation for his design because i i do really like his design i hate him as a character but he does look fly as hell (laughs) absolutely (laughs) so i was like yeah he can look good i'll accept that but the insides it's the insides that are rotten and i really hope that bella can like rip up his clothes or something in spite just to like see him look less good because he looks too good (laughs) let's be real that mask is probably the best mask out of all the apostles i'm just saying agreed it's my favorite (laughs) and actually i like that you bring up character design because i really feel that is one thing that um is really nailed throughout the series is Mm -hmm. character design in terms of illustrating you know like it doesn't just look good on paper it's one of those things where we can see like he's a great example of we can physically see in the little details even though we haven't seen his face yet um or we did see his face um but I can't remember. I have to look up the episodes again. Regardless, the little touches and the little details, the earring, the flourish, and the extra color to his mask, um, his dapper and dandy outfit, as you so put it, um, all contribute to, um, you know, actively illustrating visually his wealth, um, his own regard for you know, in a room full of anonymous people, he chooses to be the flashiest one. Um, <laughs> his arrogance in that way. Um, and it really shows, gives you just that visual cue that you need um, as a reader to be able to tap into the fact like, oh, okay, I see where this guy is going. And it really cements those uh, little character details and really helps to fully flesh out um, the kind of person that you're looking at and uh, what that can contribute in terms of the other dynamics in which this person interacts. So that's a really cool character design. I co-signed that. Agreed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All the way. <laughs> yeah, very well said. Yep. So he walks in. Uh, he doesn't just walk in. I think he waltzes in. This is more accurate. Sashays. <laughs> <laughs> And I feel like he looks like he's wearing heels. Like he's like he's he he should be wearing heels. That's his like his thing. I'm sure his start heels. <laughs> so she Bella says, "So they're not coming off your head yet. Impressive." <laughs> and Mister, uh, you know, Redcliffe, as suave as ever, is like, oh, as he sits down, ever doubted my capability to pull this off. Have you forgotten who I am, Bella? Arrogance. <laughs> <laughs> And that ponytail. Mm, sorry. It's just, it, it's incredible. That cravat, yeah. that vest, that like handkerchief. Woo. The chain. Mm. I it's feel like him and Kieran would go shopping together, especially like early hyacinths. Kieran would go shopping with him. Yes. He would go shopping mm-hmm. to date, like to go on a date to impress Lauren, you know, like oh, a okay. day after they got exploded. <laughs> I feel yeah, like, yeah. I feel like in the perfect reality where Redcliffe wasn't a shitty guy he would take Bella to go shopping to like revamp her look before her date with Darcy you know 
Instead, he's trying to, he has like Darcy, instead, he has a knife to Darcy's back, but it's whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this man, it's fashion sense. His office is really nice too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so funny. I'm just looking at the fabric of the chair and I'm like, I recognize it. Anyway, it's pretty classic. <laughs> anyway, I think my mom's linen looks like that. Anyway. <laughs> um she sits down she brings she puts the file on his desk sorry and she also now we see more of her outfits speaking of fashion and she looks amazing in green she matches the chair and the marble like clock anyway she looks great and she says you've been playing with fire and now we see him we see his chin i thought it was actually a bruise (laughs) sorry i thought it was fire but no it's a bruise because we can guess that like um apostle four uh had his way with him so I think it was Apostle 3. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. sorry the torture. yeah, 4 was the spot. One of them. I, Bella in like a dark cream with something I didn't know I needed. And I gotta say, she's giving like Flynn Rider core and I'm here for it. I'm here for mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yep. And with the corset too. Oh, oh my God. Mm-hmm. um yeah a little down bad for her but it's okay <laughs> yeah she is she's a, a very beautiful young lady <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he you know we see he's obviously had some you know negative encounters with uh, the phantom scythe and he's like and i will burn them all to cinders when the right time comes I'm like oh okay i didn't know that's how you felt boy <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so he and he continues. He's like, I've agreed to play their game for now, but all the trump cards are in my hands. Which, like, wow. Okay, so A, I didn't know he was, he felt so negatively towards the Phantom Scythe. Like, is this a new thing just because he got beat up and he's resentful? Or was he always feeling this way? That's one question. And the other thing that, that I'm curious about is like, I did not know he's so confident and why. Like, yeah, let's hear it. I feel like so. This is, I feel like this is kind of, this, this wasn't actually a surprise to me. It was just um, a verbal confirmation from him directly uh, in terms of his plans. But I think one can kind of guess that ever since Carmine Camellia and um, putting together an operation, knowing that you're sneaking around behind someone's back, even though they can totally spy on you, which they did. Um, and they checked you on it, clearly, you've got the evidence, um, but you knew that was going to happen, but you still risked it anyway, you knew it was a possibility, um, and you didn't bother to tell anybody, so you can kind of see that he already wants to use what he can, but he's already working towards breaking away, and people don't break away just because, they don't do it for show, uh, well, maybe he does it partly for show, but uh, you know, I can totally see that he does feel this way about the Phantom Scythe, and it kind of makes sense. It'll be interesting to see in the future if his whole uh, philanthropy thing is partly an act for him to boost his own ego, or if it's something that he actually believes in. Um, he has a tendency to speak uh you know with the phrases of you've waited too long and we got to do something for the people while he also does have philanthropic events but his arrogance and his other character traits would lead one to kind of get the vibe that he's not necessarily just in it for the right reasons um because he does like that public spectacle you know 
his major philanthropic event is a ball. Um, you know, it isn't just giving money away. So these kind of things uh, seem to indicate that eh, he kind of always was different and he sees Phantom Scythe. What I see in this episode is it's just verbal confirmation that Phantom Scythe was leverage uh, for his own goals. Um, and he saw how it could fit in with his own goals and uh, dreams. And I wouldn't be surprised if he is someone, if we end up seeing down the road, if he lives long enough, because I question <laughs> that at this point, I'll be honest, but I wouldn't be shocked if down the road, if he lives at some point, there's some sort of revelation that, you know, this whole time he's hoping that he can end up leading the revolution. Mm -hmm. And that would ultimately mean he has an opportunity to rule and overthrow the royal family and for mm -hmm. him to be the king. I would not be shocked if that is that's his long-term end game and i think we see a glimpse of that kind of personality here yeah i definitely agree like the confidence i was expecting because as we've sort of seen especially um in the more recent episodes he kind of does have a grip on the phantom side like he is very very capable um and he has done a lot without uh the larger phantom scythe really knowing uh the leader was on to him but again as he kind of points out in that one episode i think it was it was maybe uh 114 uh he points out that like he doesn't need the phantom scythe but the phantom scythe needs him and that is very much as you were saying in uh partly due to all the connections that he's built and the trust that he has gained from the people, whether it be inside the fandom scythe or not. And that trust and that um, following makes him very powerful and it makes him a lot more popular than uh, the other phantom scythe heads. And so his confidence, I hate to say, is well-placed because he knows what he's doing and he he has the support to back it up. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. Um, I was going to finish it with interesting take, but I think I, I kind of co-sign, but I kind of also disagree a little bit. I think it's one of those things where um, from what I could gather with the recent episodes, for me, my takeaway was more so that he definitely sees himself that way. And to some degree, he is backed up from the rest of the Phantom Size, um, kind of their dropping of details and kind of sort of what they've backed up also. Notice that Redcliffe is not ultimately choosing at this moment to overthrow it. So if he is really popular, he could just make that move right now. He wouldn't even have to get a beat down because he would be able to have the resources in that room during that meeting to do so. So although he does pose somewhat of a threat, I don't think it's so sincere. Otherwise, we would have already seen him overthrow the leader at the moment. So I think it's one of those things where in his mind, he's talking himself up. He's boosting himself up. I think the Phantom side does rec recognize that he is kind of a liability. He's not insurmountable, but it would be a definite pain in the butt for them if they did try to challenge him now. And that's why they keep him on. 
They don't necessarily keep him on because uh, they really think that he will destroy them, but they know that it could hurt them and they would rather not get hurt now. They would rather wait to know what, what kind of solu appropriate solution they could have mm -hmm. to him and then they'll kill him. <laughs> so it's more a matter of efficiency at the moment and not necessarily mm -hmm. power versus power, I don't think. I don't think he's ultimately going to be able to truly overthrow, but I wouldn't be shocked if that was his long-term goal. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting observation. I like that you said that, Food. Yeah, actually, I like that a lot because I think there's a lot kind of playing into why they're keeping him because he does also run finances. And so I sort of think that's a mix of like, he runs such a like crucial part of the Phantom Scythe that, you know, they can't replace him because of that. And um, it would be hard to yeah, and then just in general, as we were saying, like, the support he's gotten, but also, like, as you were saying, it just, he, again, it's, like, efficient to keep him around, so, yeah, that's, it's kind of why, like, he sort of has such, like, a checkmate on the Phantom Scythe, is because he has all of these aspects in play for him that he has spent years sort of building up to, and he has set, uh, spent, like, years establishing, um, and so because of that now, he has such a foothold in Artalis, whether it be uh, in the nobility circle or whether it be in the Phantom Scythe, that just he's, he's like just powerful in that regard. They put yeah. too many eggs in Redcliffe's basket. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, and this whole like politicking is just so real life. There's always these like dynamics where like there's people who are in power and they don't like each other, but they have to work together because they each have something <laughs> that is necessary. So it's like- We have to work together to murder the royal. <laughs> yeah, I also, oh, sorry. Um, I also want to mention, because I think we're about to move on, uh, Bella's line, you've been playing with fire. Cause that, that mm -hmm. stuck out to me and I'm not sure if it was like intentional or I really hope it was intentional. But it's kind of like even playing with fire and Bella is a fire dancer and mm. her like devotion or trust in him has been very like clearly like waning if it's not even there at all, you know, and he's kind of and he too has been sort of playing her, especially as we see in 91 where he makes his threats um, about Neyra. And so, yeah, he's been playing with Bella as well, not just uh the royals or the ps that's a really good point i love that it's so very very apropos yeah they right and bella have a lot of like fire references because mm -hmm. <laughs> in 91 he said that like you wouldn't want to lose your spark and i'm pretty sure there's like another match reference i can't entirely remember i do remember the spark one though he's like you wouldn't want to lose your spark and then here he says uh, and I will burn them all to cinders when the right time comes. And now that makes me want Bella to burn him to cinders because, again, mm -hmm. she's the fire dancer and he is kind of like the one who lit that fire and mm -hmm. gave her that position as a fire dancer. So it would just be like narratively, it comes full circle. Symbolically, it'll come full circle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he also wanted to burn everyone up with all that nitro. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Dang. <laughs> it's really interesting you know I love hearing you guys talk about this it's a really interesting twisted reference um because you know her name in the circus is Hestia Hestia mm -hmm. is the goddess of the hearth and the hearth 
for ancient Greeks and Romans was considered, or for the ancient Romans, was considered the heart of the home and the heart of the city and civilization. You couldn't have a building without a hearth. Um, and so it's interesting to note that she comes from two broken homes and uh, Redcliffe, he's, he might see himself as a father figure, but let's be real here. He's a user and abuser. And so it's interesting that Bella here, you know, claims that she's a woman without a home and, or, you know, she's an independent woman and she doesn't care about anybody, but interesting to note that she chose to still, I, I think there is some like little match girl references um, in the one episode, um, but, uh, you know, she chose to keep that. And what's interesting is that, you know, the one thing that she says she doesn't need, the one thing that she seems to have done without for her entire life is the one thing that she chooses to represent when she's in the circus, that doing something that she enjoys. So yeah. I wonder if at some point that would be really cool to see a full circle moment where she is able to somehow, somehow have a happy home by the end of all this. <laughs> yeah. Who would love that, right? Yes, she knows I would. exactly how that happy home would look. Uh, yeah with Darcy but um that's really interesting that you brought it up because I like I second that entirely um it was when I heard you start talking about that I was like oh my god because a, a really long time ago when like Hestia was like um when that reveal happened and we knew a lot less about Bella I remember I might have said it somewhere but I remember thinking that it's like it's so ironic that like the goddess of the hearth and home right you know the goddess of literally like homes right well how it doesn't really see like she has her own right like she has these connections to people and she has these relationships but it's not necessarily like she really belongs to any of them right like even within the phantom sites she's very much like an independent um Operating. service associate like she's very independent to the phantom sites and um she has said that like before like you know i don't really care for any of the people around me I'll just like kill them and get the money when it when the time comes and with Kieran around that time was when she had that little like duel with him after she killed Sake. so it was like yeah it doesn't really seem like they're on amazing terms either but what I think it's really interesting is that once we bring like Darcy into the mix and we start learning more about um Bella's family and then her situation with Redcliffe it's kind of like a whole like she has gone like two failed attempts as you were saying um at sort of finding like a belonging with a family because both of her father figures in the in those dynamics were like extremely shitty and are extremely shitty because it's not past tense yet um but it's uh, I feel like what what they're doing with Darcy is that they're kind of just like introducing sort of like an end game as we were discussing um and so yeah it's just it's kind of ironic that although being the goddess of the heaven home she doesn't really have one herself and I think that it is kind of leaning towards like she has to also make that choice for herself like who is she gonna align herself with especially in the coming like season and what relationships is she going to actually prioritize because she can say all these things about who she puts before others but you know you kind of have to put it into practice as well and so I'm really interested to see how Bella's choices are going to impact her 
um because yeah it's a little dicey either way like she can only if she chooses like the ps and she loses darcy if she chooses darcy then she loses the ps and i don't think she can go without neither with i don't think she can go without either right now because the ps kind of empowers her you know and so she clings on to that feeling of power but we'll get we can get to that later when yeah we've we've lots of theories and yeah <laughs> i have stuff to say also about that but yeah let's finish the episode so i mean the, the scene so um bella leaning back against the wall says so you're not done going behind their backs and he says surprised and he's looking at the file that she bought him and it has um elvira and ryan fleming's and um you know her death reports presumably and he says i thought you knew me better after all these years bella and she's like nope not that surprised no but do you really think the leader would trust anything you do from now on? Just like, duh, a good question. <laughs> and he smirks or he snarls, actually, as we are, are so helpfully uh, told. I couldn't care less about his trust anymore. He has no choice but to cooperate with me. I, this is this guy is is remarkably confident for someone who just got yeah. beat up. I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like. Who does that? Who does that? I like, I really like confidence. Like, I think it's fantastic. It's a shame that it's Radcliffe, but I mean, it's very impressive. <laughs> it's like the anti-Captain America. I could do this all day. <laughs> he doesn't have Artelis's ass, but that goes to Will. But um, That yeah. was our point <laughs> reference. Well, um, well. Does Kieran? How does it compare to Kieran? <laughs> uh, Kieran has a concave for an ass. This is everyone knows this. I feel like it would go to camera well. Agreed. I feel like it would Agreed. go to camera well. I don't know. I think Lady A has the most voluptuous, you know, behind. Like everyone Lady else is drawn pretty voluptuous. This is, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Butler. 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 I don't but know I think Butler. Lady A has the most voluptuous charges against her for domestic <laughs> violence. Um, I don't trust her. I don't trust her. <laughs> so, so it's all a bustle underneath that. All the, yeah. Those hoop skirts. It's just a bustle, right? Whatever the word is for a fake behind. <laughs> um, but yeah, the scene where starting from like where Bella says, not that surprised, no. Um, I think she's been testing him throughout the scene, but here it really stuck out to me that I was like, hmm, I think Bella definitely is trying to like extract sort of with him. And um because and I said this in the fandom side server, but I think that Bella sees how Apostle Seven is treating the leader as how Apostle Seven treats her. We know that from episode 115 that Bella's loyalty to the apostle is all but non-existent, but as but so is the leader's trust in the apostle as well so when apostle seven says i couldn't care less about his trust anymore it's very much it very much could be applied to his relationship with bella as well because bella also has no choice to cooperate with him even though that she doesn't really trust him either Mm -hmm. um and so it would be really interesting if bella is in fact testing him in this moment because she's seeing apostle seven's attitude um to a leader that she can probably recognize uh, to herself and she can make her judgments on this kind of attitude in a setting where she's not the subject on it and so it gives her sort of a new perspective as sort of like a bystander to the attitude instead of the subject as it and so she can make those judgments and then apply them to her own relationship with him 
if that makes any sense. <laughs> no, that makes total sense. I also think she might not just necessarily also, I think she's definitely testing, like you said, um, for her own edification. But also I think she's, <laughs> he's just handing her nuggets of gold that she can take back to the leader. Mm-hmm. So I'm not- curious about that because I feel it sounds like she's just asking for her own interest. Now I'm curious, like, will she report this to the leader? Like, he just trusts her completely, which is so funny. Like she, he doesn't even realize she betrayed him. He's such a dumb butt. Or maybe he does realize that she has betrayed him, and she's he's giving her nuggets to like sort of like. I don't know how this would work, but he's trying to like throw off the leader. And so he's giving her what seems like incriminating evidence. But then there's going to be like some reveal or something. And it's going to be like he was playing them the entire time. Because I feel like he should know, like just the amounts of threats that he's given Bella. He should like any reasonable person would be like, maybe I wouldn't want to work for you, you know. But I think he still does. He probably still does have a lot of confidence in the like grooming that he's done um and but yeah i have questions for him because like cutting off the like one person that you know bella cares about does not seem like the best way to keep her loyalty well i think he is so self-centered that he thinks that he is enough you know he adopted her and he is the center of her world and what more does she need she just has me like she's just gonna be my loyal dog forever I think that's the level of like selfishness and self-delusion, which, you know, we see he's a little delusional with, okay. So he talks a confident game, but like, I don't know if I believe him that he's so indispensable. Right. I mean, he almost got his head cut off last, you know, whatever, last time that they, the PS met. So I think that a part of his flaw is, is that he is too confident. And like, I think that'll be his downfall. Mm-hmm. Oh, True. I also like I do want to point out that like something I really noticed with this episode is that Bella also has a lot less like we were talking about how like how like elegantly Apostle 7 was coming in this episode but we're seeing right now that Bella has a lot less swag than she did um in episode 91 Mm. and she's keeping her distance like in episode 91 um Mm. she literally like she sits down like she comes in she sits down she even takes off the dude's mask but here she is like keeping that distance and in a little bit he's the one who actually approaches her um but it's kind of interesting because i think kieran her discussions with kieran have been sort of like catalysts for herself and how she like perceives things because Mm -hmm. it feels like she recognizes a lot of behaviors and she can make like pretty decent like decisions for herself or on how like she perceives things like she can make those judgments but she doesn't really sort of mind those judgments until kieran comes in and he's like dude are you sure this is okay like because kieran pointed out how like he he asked her about what she would do if um redcliffe or apostle seven actually did um try to get her to harm Darcy and that was very much like a follow-up to episode 91 where uh, the apostle does make that threat on Darcy's life and Bella kind of snaps in that moment and she kind of like I think she knees him really hard (laughs) 
and Kieran falls over. And so Kieran is asking the right questions when it comes to Bella. And it's kind of like forcing Bella to be like, hey, I know you've made um, these observations, but when are you going to realize that these observations are actually really serious? Because I know you know you're, they're serious, but you're not doing anything about them. And yeah, I think Bella's still kind of like hesitant about it because again, the PS has a lot of familiarity for her. Um, mm. But her interactions with Kieran have definitely been pushing her to make some hard or to realize some hard truths. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, it's a contrast to Kieran because Kieran seems like he hated the PS as soon as he was in it and he always was rebelling against it and he always had a moral stance against it. And Bella is just having like her awakening now in whatever form. And again, like this is this is why I, I still think she's morally ambiguous because either that or she just doesn't have the same sense of morality that Kieran does because Kieran hates mm-hmm. what he does. He's feels regret about his assassinations and she doesn't seem to, but she says some stuff further on about that. So I do want to yeah. do want to do that. So yeah, like like we said, he he now approaches her. He's like, What's going on with you, Bella? There used to be nothing like multiple murders in a row to lift up your spirits. So he notices that she is more calmed down, more tampered down. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't even answer. She looks down for a while. She looks contemplative. And she says, perhaps I'm getting bored of killing useless people right and left. So I think she's being honest. I really think this is kind of like the first time that she is evaluating her choices and, you know, wondering maybe I don't want to kill people. And I, I don't know, the fact that she doesn't use moral terms like, oh, I feel bad for killing people. Right? She's like bored and useless people. So I don't know if she quite has you know, a regard for human life. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. You I kind of, yeah, I kind of read this as Bella doesn't really care much for like the Phantom Scythe, right? She doesn't really care for any of its politics or its spat or its like, ideology or anything about that. And so everyone that she kills kind of is useless to her. It, I mean, it's just a job to her. These people hold no significant meaning to any aspect of her life. And that's also why like, when Darcy's life is threatened and specifically it's threatened that she's the one who has to kill Darcy or that possibility is brought up why she's like so like I guess like adverse to it (laughs) I don't think that's the right word because it's yeah she um it's a much more extreme reaction from her with that but I think that she has kind of become disillusioned in the Phantom Scythe because what is like really important to remember with between Bella and Kieran is that Bella's loyalty to the Phantom Scythe in general and um, and especially the Apostle is that it comes because she came from a very hopeless situation and the Phantom Scythe empowered her through violence. Um, and so we don't really know enough about Kieran to say whether that situation was the same, but for Bella, um, being taken out of that abusive environment and while we don't really know how Bella perceived the circus or the PS uh, as a younger child um, the PS kind of saved her from that and that was enough to get her loyalty because she was a child and you know there was a very simple like um, need and uh, it's kind of interesting to me because I believe or I kind of see it as Bella really got indoctrinated into the Phantom Scythe, maybe even more so than Kieran, because she has probably been in it for like double the time that Kieran's been in there, because we know that he's been there for at least seven years. She's been in there for closer to 15. 
Um, so yeah, Kieran was around maybe 14, 14 to 17 when he got into the Phantom Scythe, most likely. Uh, Bella was eight, <laughs> around eight or nine. So I think, yeah, just growing up in that environment and just being so much younger than Kieran when she really got into the Phantom Scythe, it would have changed a lot of her perspectives on it. I do think that there's one critical piece of information that um, we're forgetting a little bit, and that is that people don't leave the Phantom Scythe. That's something that's been established by Kieran. It's been reinforced by um, people like Sandman. Sandman is um, probably the only character that's successfully gotten away from the Phantom Side without getting killed. And even yes. that's a questionable fact. He's <laughs> a couple times over. Um, so Bella's uh, desire to stay with the Phantom Side is equal to Kieran's. It's a matter of you're kind of stuck. Now, Kieran has some other motivational developments within that, whether that's post joining the Phantom Side or that's the inspiring reason for continuing with the Phantom Side when you're abducted as a child. Um, you know, that's uh, neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is, is that they, this is the framework in which they have to operate because they will die if they say, hey, I don't wanna do this anymore. They're gonna get bumped themselves. So that is one thing where I don't think it's fair to Bella's character to say that her staying with the Phantom side and by extension, the circus, because if Redcliffe runs the circus and that's used partly as a front for his Phantom side activities, then that is by extension, part of the Phantom side. It, I don't think it's necessarily fair to judge her moral compass by any um, act of uh, continuing the operations of either the circus or the Phantom side. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's kind of established that she has uh, that the circus activities are more uh, of a passion project, but I'm sure for her also, it is partly contributing to the front that it is. Um, and so I think her morality and her moral compass will be more defined as time moves forward. Um, I definitely don't think, I think that um, it'll be more defined again in how you're saying, like how she responds to her relationships and dynamics. Mm -hmm. But again, another parallel is that her confidence and her, uh, all these useless murders, you know, uh, the murders of useless people that kind of mirrors um, her, her own boss number two's attitude and overconfidence in things. Um, because it's a really good cover. It's a really good cover. If you don't want people to ask questions, you act like you're disinterested or you just act like you love something if you don't want somebody to know that you hate it. And it'll kind of end the conversation in a lot of ways. If you notice a lot of her uh, conversational techniques, um, just like with Kieran, just like with Kieran, when he puts on that um, mask and that disguise, and we know that he's talking for the purpose of gaining information, she has that too. We just haven't had enough scenes of her being chilled out um, besides a handful of them. But even with Kieran, he's a coworker and he's a colleague. And even though they have a pact together, that doesn't mean they're required to be completely 100% honest with each other. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there are moments where it is confirmed that they're not being honest with each other and they're just transparent about that fact. So yes, she's tough to figure out, 
I, I personally don't take away from it that she's necessarily completely undefined. I think some of it has to do with context. Uh, and when you put the context together, her and Kieran are very similar because they do have similar positions and they do have similar fronts to maintain. And um, yeah, I, I don't know where I'm going anymore. Absolutely. <laughs> I just want to say absolutely. I agree to like all of that. <laughs> yeah, like that you bring up an excellent point uh, with sort of the blackmail that the Phantom Scythe has on everyone and how it's kind of impossible to leave. Um, and I, I kind of just, because I was coming at it from like the perspective of like Bella, sort of like, this is sort of what she knows because she's done this for so long and which the really only time that she wasn't in the Phantom Scythe because the circus is sort of an extension of the fantasize. The only really time that she wasn't with either of those two was when she was with her biological dad. And that was not a great situation for her. Um, and so, you know, that's that was like her only taste of like a life outside of the circus and Phantom Scythe. And it was a pretty bad and sour taste. And then I kind of think that Bella is sort of just desensitized to it all, you know, because again, she's been doing this for so long. And um, she, I think she does realize that like the consequences of what happens to her if she does try to leave. But also, I kind of think that that doesn't really, leaving isn't really one of her priorities right mm -hmm. now, or it wasn't really one of her priorities because she's kind of found a way to make her situation comfortable for herself. Um, primarily through like making a lot of money off the situation you know she's like I'm just gonna kill everyone and get the money like the money's my priority and I think she was somewhat truthful in that um but I think Fella right now has sort of just she's found a little niche within the phantom site that she's comfortable in and she's just trying to go through that until and that was kind of how I perceived Bella is just trying to make her way through it all and, until Darcy comes up and suddenly everything gets a lot more complicated because <laughs> I think what Darcy kind of did is that she shook up Bella's perception of her situation because um, I don't think Bella really acknowledged how sort of trapped she was and then Darcy makes that comment about you as you out of like everyone should know what it's like to be trapped or mm -hmm. and Bella has again a very like contemplative face during that scene and she's definitely changed by episode 91 when we see her again mm -hmm. and then we have Kieran again being like you don't really have as much control as you like to think coming like with that attitude towards her and so Bella is being confronted with a lot of people who are sort of um challenging the perception perceptions that she had of her situation and that and the comfort that she was trying to find within her own sort of life yeah Sorry. I was gonna say that is kind of cool um thinking about how like what you just commented on about how you know beginning of the show beginning of the series you know she was always the one to get a little bit of a rise out of Karen and now Karen's always the one getting the rise out of her mm -hmm. yeah, yeah it's 
this is ironic because it's a Loki panel, but I feel like the Bella Kieran dynamic is just consistently that one panel where Lauren has a knife to Kieran, or no, Lauren has a gun to Kieran and uh, Kieran has a knife to Lauren. And I think it's like episode 26, somewhere around there. Um, it might be 25, but I, I always kind of find that a little funny because it's like, you know, they they have weapons to each other, but like, you know, they can't really, but they're still kind of stuck with each other, you know, just out of occupation and then history. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think Bella's character arc has sort of been, she, she accepts uh, her situation, right, with Redcliffe and the Apostle. And she was just, and that's why she was like so much more confident in Karen because she just fully committed to it, you know. Um, but then as figures from her past, like Darcy come back and, you know, Kieran, who's sort of been on this assassin journey with her and is definitely a lot farther ahead. And they're like, yeah, I don't, I'm not really the biggest fan of side supporter, you know, those people, like they come together and they're challenging Bella's position. And I really like seeing it challenged because as Bella starts questioning more things, we we'll, we see in episodes like these in her dynamic with Redcliffe that like she's being a lot more cautious than she was before because of her like encounter with Kieran and so that cautiousness is definitely going to culminate into something a lot more serious in how she perceives Redcliffe mm-hmm. slash Apostle 7. Yeah I, I love everything that you guys both said and I also really love what you said about how her background um, and her experiences influence like how she perceives her situation and yeah I totally agree she's going through an awakening now um, I do have a point to say about how I think that she does differ from Kieran in her natural personality, which we're going to see in her childhood, you know, recollection that we have now. So anyway, uh, Radcliffe gets up and, you know, in response to her finally admitting like, okay, maybe this is not what I want. He gets up and there's a doom, you know, statement. And we see his hands are bruised also. And he walks over to her, the, the angle that we see, just the feet coming, very menacing. It's just, you know, great that we see that, like he's coming towards her. It's, it's, it's a menacing approach. And he says, but no one's got quite the same talent as you do, dearie. And he, we see him, like just the back of him coming close to Bella. Bella for once looks like a little hunched over and a little um, cautious. She's looking to the side. Um, she looks unhappy. She looks a little you know what's the word like uncomfortable or she also looks like she's kind of ignoring him right and she's like in her own world like lost in her own thoughts and she pulls out the dagger right her famous golden viper dagger and she sees herself reflected in it right so this is you know quite literally a moment of reflection and she now has a flashback to when she first got that dagger and we see a pair of hands uh, first of all, does anyone have any speculation on whose hands they are? I'm pretty sure they're Redcliffe's. I really hope they're Redcliffe's because uh, I've been speculating for like a really long time now. Like ever since we got that little nugget that it's like the venom is like super expensive, you know, to use. I- I've always thought that it was like Redcliffe who gave her the knife because he would have been able to afford it and to give her use and access to the venom uh, mm-hmm. because he would have had the money to um, and so I really hope that those are Redcliffe's hands, but every, like, 
I shouldn't say everyone, but like so many people in this comic are like hella pale. So who knows, really? <laughs> um, but I think it definitely sort of, I think the scene kind of implies it because, you know, his position to her right now is sort of, it's the same position that the person who's giving her the knife would have been in. Mm. Because we see that Bella was super young when she got the knife. Um, she it was probably Redcliffe because that would have been one of the key um, adult figures in her life following uh, her joining the circus mm-hmm. uh, and I also just think that there's some narrative irony if one father figure like her new father figure gave her the knife and she used her and she used that knife to kill her old father figure and because I personally believe that Bella will be the one killing Redcliffe so I need I need that to also come full circle and for her to use the knife that she gave him to kill oh, him. I, I just, that would it would be, be the perfect way for it, like everything to come back onto him, you know, and he gets what he deserves. Yes, that's very dramatic. But yeah, the whole scene is set up visually like very poetically because right, like the mirror is a literal reflection. She, you know, is contemplating her life now. She's contemplating how she got here and like whether she wants to continue this. But one thing, the thing that I want to point out about this, so she gets the knife and we see like little child Bella, <clears throat> she's like, oh, like she first looks like shocked and then she, you know, kind of touches the, the snake's arm and the snake's mouth and she is just like, looks pleased as punch. She has like this sadistic little smile on her face. And I have to say like that to me shows that inherently Bella is a different personality than someone like Kieran. Like Kieran has always been someone who, you know, regrets his his need to kill people we saw like presumably his first kill the chandelier man he was so hesitant he was so agonized he still is so agonized about his every day he looks at his arms and is there you know they're red he thinks of himself as a murderer like he just cannot live in himself whereas bella she i think she just always had a little bit of this mystical side and i do think a lot of it like we'll see comes from the need for power because she was so powerless as a child but i think that there's you know everyone will react differently to situations of let's say abuse like um based on their personality so bella's personality is like i'm going to now have power i'm going to take control and maybe even go too far in the other direction like of not caring about people because you know no one cared about me so i'm not going to care about them mm-hmm. interesting okay. perspective yeah. i actually disagree with the um kieran uh concept that he regrets all his murders because that actually directly flies in the face of all the character development and growth that he's done recently it wouldn't be as nearly as much impact if we just wrote all of his murders off as something that he always regretted Mm -hmm. um the main episode that really kind of solidifies this dual dynamic within himself and what makes him a complex character is that he doesn't regret all of his murders he does have a code that he lives by but he still does them and he still takes pride in the fact that he's really good at his work um uh the episode the monster episode of when she calls him a monster before he gets to that and i have always been this way which is a lie everything else else he said before that was true you know i i kill without hesitation you know um you know going on and on about that um so in that way and I say that partly also to support the concept that, you know, Bella might not be as heartless as she puts on, um, because if Kieran can be both things at the same time, not enjoying it in some contexts, and definitely not being 
not okay with it in a lot of other contexts, she may also be the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think definitely sometimes her hesitation to people like Redcliffe or her, her um, you know, very um, austere moments with uh, Kieran, you know, those are the moments where we see that. Those are her monster moments where she's telling us visually that, no, she hasn't always been this way. And I kind of like that they have these flashbacks in this episode of going back to the beginning because she's remembering it wasn't always quite like this. And just like you said, how did I get here? Yeah, you know, I actually, um, I think that the wording that Kieran used in 43 was very, very, very deliberate. And it was set up to lead Lauren to think that he doesn't care, but he really does. So like the fact that he kills without hesitation is because he knows I, I got to do this. So he does it. I, I think I very strongly believe that he always has been regretting it and he never wanted to do it, but he just had to. And like in order to achieve his end goal of like taking down the leader. So um, I think that if you look back at 43, like I think he was very carefully choosing his words so that they would not come across as lies, but without revealing too much about his emotional state. Okay. And also, okay. I have some... if he believes that about himself, it comes out as true, right? If he believes yeah. he's a monster, then, you know, that's okay. how Lauren hears it. I have some interesting thoughts on that. Um, okay, first I'm going to address Kieran and then I'm going to address Bella. But with Kieran, I think I kind of agree with Veronica. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to make sure because I was like, I, I, for that's a second, I, like, my heart dropped. I was like, wait. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Um, I kind of agree with Veronica that like I don't really feel like the way that a lot of people perceive Kieran as complicated is kind of the reason that he is actually complicated and how like he regrets so many of his murders. I do think he regrets a lot but I do sort of enjoy the idea that he might not be fully regretful and that's because of how in episode 115 Bella points out the agency that both Kieran and Bella have in their murders and she points out that how like you know we're not doing this um because we're forced to we're doing this because we choose to and we choose to endure in this reality and we choose to endure in this um in this line of work and even though like the way we leave is death you know we're we choose to stick around for a reason and you continue to kill because you have a reason and you have a motivation to kill and it kind of in that line sort of calls into question I think you know how much can you regret right because I think Kieran still I kind of agree with Mindy and how I think Kieran does um, regret a lot of his murders but I sort of agree with Veronica and how he is the reason that he has to regret almost because he stays you know mm -hmm. he stays in the Phantom Scythe he and because his motivation calls him to, be, uh, which is probably that revenge quest for the protectee. So because he stays, he murders. And mm -hmm. because he murders, he regrets. And that is sort of all caused because he's staying um, because of his ulterior motivations. And um, then with Bella, like, this is going to sound really weird. And maybe I just sympathize with her too much. But... <laughs> Uh, when Bella like smiles after getting the knife it's kind of weird because I didn't really interpret it as sadistic like I I always thought it was kind of wholesome really? and I know that's, that's that's almost sadistic in its own line but it was kind of like because 
I kind of saw it as like Bella said, and again, in episode 115, I really like episode 115, if it's not obvious, but (laughs) Bella said that the apostle made her powerful. And that could also be sort of another piece of evidence for is the apostle who gave her that knife. But it's sort of like Bella, I think that Bella sees power as violence because her biological father he would be violent towards her right as we see he was drunk and angry all the time and uh but he was powerful and Bella recognized the powerful and that's why she was you know terrified and abused as a child um and then we go to Redcliffe who Bella also probably sees as a very powerful figure and while he himself isn't necessarily the one who inflicts violence he's the one who threatens violence as we see he threatens violence with Neira and he gets other people to do the violence for him as he gets Bella to do the murders and then we have Bella just in general working with the um Phantom Scythe and she works for the leader who organized one of the most violent or who organized the most violent um tragedy in Artalis in like recent memory and one of the catalyst events for like the entire story that being the Allendale train station tragedy and so all of these powerful figures in Bella's life they're all powerful because they inflict violence and so I think Bella has that um, association between power and violence and so when she considers herself powerful, it's because she considers herself violent. Mm. Unlike Kieran, I think Kieran, again, sort of humanity, he finds power in humanity and he finds, and he's empowered by seeing humanity and acts of humanity. And that's why he draws humanity. Um, And, you know, Kieran was in episode six, no, in episode 54, Kieran is 16 in that flashback scene. And so, you know, around that time, he he was definitely a lot older and, you know, he's able to make these judgments um, about what he finds fulfilling. But for Bella, you know, kind of like her entire life, she grew up in a situation where the only way to survive was really to be violent. And so I think that's why Bella finds so much joy as a young child in the knife, because, you know, for she's still pretty young in that so it was probably very recently after she was taken in by the circus Mm -hmm. but you know in the scene she's given the tools to be powerful herself she's given the tools to be violent but to Bella to be violent again means to be powerful and so she's finally given her own agency and she's finally given like her own power sort of in that scene and that's why she smiles because she's finally being empowered herself I actually have a completely different interpretation for both of those um, with that scene. For me, that scene read as just the pure classic kid got a brand new bike scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> age For her age. Well, seriously, though. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I tell you, like, uh, the, my kids every day, you know, you give them something brand new and shiny and they all have that exact same facial expression. <laughs> it could be a pencil a basic pencil but if it's a shiny pencil and you're giving it to them oh my goodness you put sparkles on a piece of paper oh yeah you hand them watercolors oh yeah yeah 
that same face and smile. And mm -hmm. the other reason that helps me to contribute to this, uh, the other thing that contributes to this interpretation that I have is um, later in the scene where we do see her stabbing somebody with it, she's not a child. She's in a fully formed adult in that scene. So eventually I do think she found agency and power in being able to learn how to use it. Um, but I see more of what we're gonna still assume is Redcliffe handing her the dagger and her taking it. That's that's one of the first, consider, consider the act of you know coming from a broken home. She's uh, the only scene that we have as evidence for this is we see a father casting her out into the snow, expecting her to get things to give to him. This is the first time that someone has given something to her mm. and it's shiny and it's new and it's golden. What a majestic gift. This person must really care. So those feelings of joy and, uh, you know, in that way, my interpretation was more the pure and somewhat innocent joy as a child. I don't think there's necessarily a connection with power and violence yet, because um, even though you know, uh, even even though kids do sometimes, some children um, do kind of use violence as a way of getting control or attention from a situation. Um, that's not something that they interpret necessarily from others all the time. Um, but nevertheless, it's interesting how that one scene can manifest so many different interpretations. Mm -hmm. We need more answers in the future. <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, I don't know if we if there's ever a clear-cut answer. I think that's the beauty of having different personalities and different brains approaching the same subject matter. And this is why I love having co-hosts because I think that so many people just contribute a fuller picture. And also it's the beauty of art being able to convey more things than once. And the beauty of this medium that you can go and refer back to and see something different every time. Yeah, I actually, I really like that interpretation because I, I do think that it is on the more wholesome side, despite it being like a knife. Um, Poison is super staggering. Yeah, I think kind of like what you said about like, yeah, he's giving me a gift, you know, he must really care for me. How I, I kind of connect that to how I was seeing it as, again, that line of like, oh, Apostle 7 made me powerful, sort of like, and so, Bella like that sort of loyalty initially because we do know that Bella was very loyal to Redcliffe um at least early on and that sort of loyalty kind of stems from like yeah he he I think it's sort of like he gave her the means to sort of protect herself um free herself from that which yeah. oppressed her and to free yeah, herself exactly. over exactly not it's not just a, like he gave her material gifts but also that he gave her a means by which she could um sort of like regain her own agency and as we see like she does that by killing her dad <laughs> even though it's years later um yeah potato potato <laughs> whatever you know <laughs> yeah i yeah i love your interpretations and i love how they just there's so many facets to this character and i love how you point out all of them mm -hmm. Yeah, so as you know, we see in this flashback, we see teenage uh, Bella coming in. Her dad is drunk on the couch. She leans, you know, kneels before him, says, finally, I can give you what you deserve. She has a great line, very sarcastic, picks up the dagger. Now, we don't actually see her kill him, by the way. So a part of me wonders if, like, she didn't actually do it. 
Hmm. Wait. A, okay. I actually never thought about that. I like, want to I see the end of that scene now. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Hmm. I mean, very likely he died of his alcoholism himself, but maybe he'll yeah. come up again. Yeah. <laughs> Dang, I didn't think about that. Oh, okay. That that'd be really interesting, because you know, Bella says that I've grown tired of killing all these useless people, and so all these people are sort of meaningless to her, but this is like the one time where we would actually see her I guess like about to enact violence on someone who does mean a lot to her and mm-hmm. although it's not a good connection it's not a good relationship and the reason that they uh he's important to her it's not for good reasons mm-hmm. um there is still some emotional significance as they are like Bella didn't know him personally and he hurt her a lot but he's also like family right mm-hmm. blood family at least and honestly ditch ditch the biological relations i need bella to find found family with the rest of the main cast you know <laughs> well yeah. in that wonderful family promo photo we got for the season <laughs> i think that'll be in forthcoming well yeah i'm curious what's forthcoming but let, let's um finish up this scene and then i i do want to speculate what she's going to do mm-hmm. so she is basically thinking out loud like she's i think she's being very honest she is looking at herself in the in the mirror she's reflecting on herself right and she says um and he says sorry um you did everything every single thing i ever asked with vigor steal spy and even kill when i needed you to and bella says you gave me everything that i had and she's again it does show something about the nature of the relationship that she's able to be so honest um I feel like their relationship is like a close but toxic one (laughs) like it has the good and the bad and like a little bit of like enmeshment and like unhealthy boundaries and like expectations of like you'll just do whatever I say it's just like reeks of something unhealthy like too enmeshed I don't know and he says something that you should never forget there we go right lifts up her chin very manipulative like like you know a true parent or someone right if you love someone you let them go right and if they're yours they'll come back to you like this is not healthy a relationship don't like go don't go back mm-hmm. good you're good mm-hmm. you're good without it you're good without him girl right, he yeah. wants to control her it kind of like it just reinforces that sort of idea that like you know bella bella's loyalty to him does come from like you know how he was the one who kind of pulled her out of her situation mm-hmm. um and although bella said and bella does say that like you know she doesn't care for him anymore but i think it's very clear that those like remnants of you know his abuse and his sort of manipulation on her still remain um and i think like she is trying to distance himself sorry i think she is trying to distance herself from him but you know I don't think she's immune to that manipulation. Mm. Mm. I'm, I'm kind of guessing, I think Radcliffe might have started off as more benevolent than he is now because the fact that he joined the Phantom side, the fact that he, um, you know, did so many things for the poor, I feel like he probably started out with better intentions and over time developed into being more selfish and more self-centered and more power hungry and more manipulative. I just it's possible that he started out better than he is now and i'm curious if we'll see that or you know or if he'll just always have been a little slimy <laughs> but i feel like he is a little bit of a mixed bag like I, I can't i feel like he he displays to me more toxicity rather than like outright 
outright abuse. Like, yeah. I don't know if he's even so self-aware. I have a similar, I feel like I have a similar interpretation to you, Mindy, of this scene in particular, like of him as a character in particular, an abuser is an abuser is an abuser. I don't think someone who takes in um, children who are abandoned or being abused, hands them a weapon and say, hey, go kill people for me, mm-hmm. is someone who is well-intentioned from the start. Um, that person is never well-intentioned because that's grooming um, and it's intentional and it is abusive and manipulative. Um, but I also, uh, you know, my my takeaway from that scene is honestly it read as very incestuous um very much again of that uh that again that grooming that uh you know hoping to uh mold someone into your own personal servant for the rest of your life in this scene based on her facial expression and the way she behaves I don't think for a second that she means what she says and actually takes that to heart. I think she's saying that to placate him mm. to get him to shut up. Just- um, she knows that that's what he wants to hear. And I think to some degree, she also says it, having some understanding of the way that he sees himself and the fact that, you know, at the moment, he does have some kind of... Uh, place in her life and that you know if she still works for him and for the moment she has to still maintain that tie partly because of what the leader has asked her to do and you don't disagree with the leader um and also partly to protect her own interests of protecting the people she cares about i.e the one person she cares about and also you know just making enough money so that eventually she can bounce um so it's kind of a double meaning in that. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think in this moment, definitely we get to see the icky, icky, icky dynamic of grooming young children for your own personal terrible interest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something that like I kind of speculate about and we were kind of talking about this like earlier influences sort of, but you know, every time that we see Bella around Redcliffe, it's like exponentially clear how toxic that relationship is, right? Um, and how there are like so many expectations for that, you know, and how he's like, you know, used to do everything I asked you to, right? Um, and then you kind of compare it to like Bella's other main relationship, that being with Darcy. And you can just like, we've only had one scene of them together, but it's, what kind of strikes out to me is that like it's very clear in the differences because similarly to how Radcliffe also asks um he also asks Bella for like or he needs Bella to do stuff for him Darcy also asks Bella for her help but she doesn't really like insist upon it and like in that scene and she doesn't make any threats about it you know and so when Bella leaves she doesn't follow after Bella she gives Bella that space and then she comes back later after some time has passed to give a note and she doesn't even approach her in person because Bella is very uncomfortable with that and so even if like and Bella does like throw away the note but it's just kind of interesting to me how like you know Darcy is definitely a much healthier relationship than um 
Bellas with Redcliffe and I think exposure to that healthy relationship has definitely like played a much more impactful role in Bella's perception of Redcliffe. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, I, I, not that I think, I feel like Nira and Bella also have some unhealthy dynamics going on, but um, but definitely like it's not, it doesn't seem like it's toxic and grooming like you said, Veronica, which I think is actually the perfect way to describe this Redcliffe's relationship with Bella. Like, and I think Bella is undergoing the process of like de-enmeshing herself right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she has to mesh yourself but to align yourself with the one person more powerful than your abuser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So she doesn't respond and she asks him, why did you call me here today? And he turns away and it just once again we see his beautiful flourishing of his overcoat, waistcoat, whatever. And he says, other than for the pleasure of your company, which is his, you know, him being charming, I will need you tomorrow. I will attend the premiere of a new play a charitable event for fundraising that many nobles will attend uh, and many people in the cast will attend. <laughs> Considering the recent new measures, oh, I mean, not this the opera cast, I mean like our cast. <laughs> Considering the recent new measures, there will be increased security all around the theater, but there's no one I trust more for you than this, my sweet viper. And he gives her, he's holding the Mirage Opera House blueprint and there's a newspaper. So he gives it to her, he says, the blueprint of the Mirage Opera House, be ready for seven. She says, understood. And um, just my question is like, he doesn't ever tell her what the mission is. Like, is, is that gonna happen at some point? Or is he like the kind of guy to be like, okay, uh, nice to see you here. Now in five minutes, you will go kill this person. <laughs> I think it was more for, I, I interpreted that scene as uh, security. Cause let's face it, she's not, she's not just an assassin. She's also a spy. She was spying. She was doing mm. the spy thing. You gotta be a spy too to be able to um, to be able to effectively be a, be an assassin. So I think yeah, this is just one of those uh, Ford theater scenarios where he's trying not to be the one that gets assassinated that evening, and just wants some extra security detail and somebody to look out, and also potentially hear some juicy information. If somebody needs to die, okay, may as well have <laughs> the best assassin I know, just in case. Yeah, um, I was thinking that, like, it's kind of interesting how he's giving her the blueprints, so it kind of seems like she is going to break in instead of going in, like, through the front door or whatever, getting tickets. Um, So I kind of think that it's probably because Bella's going to be armed. So, yeah, like, probably he's um, worried about, like, some... He's probably worried that, like, you know he might be attacking people or like just again it's like for security but yeah I think Bella's gonna like really just drop in the assassin mm-hmm. way and, and like get through the vents or something <laughs> but um I'm really hoping for a Bella opera outfit uh for personal reasons <laughs> <laughs> um I just you know Bella in formal wear I need it that would be luscious <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're gonna see Nera in formal wear too. Yeah. Oh my so god. Let's let's list who is gonna be at this event. Bill Arcy. Exactly. That's funny. So there's like this event is gonna be really cool because there's so many people there. So we know like the Queen is sending Darcy. Um, I think Will and Kim are doing security, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's Sandman and his and Mrs. Green, Mrs. Green. Like they're gonna do something there. 
like everything is going to converge at this opera and like I was so excited wait sorry did you say Lauren and Kim or Will and Kim because I'm not sure okay because sorry I'm not sure what Will's up to like he might be doing security detail but then I also saw some speculation that he's going to be on a date with Darcy because a while back so shared some screenshots of uh, Will and Darcy and I thought that they were on a date because they had like matching hats you know um but I don't know if you would need a hat to go to an opera you know it's like one of those top hats door mm-hmm. oh true because initially like I thought that like maybe it's just like they were going to dinner because I saw those screenshots and I saw like that one one of Kim and I was like oh my god imagine like Darcy and Will are on a date and then Kim sees them but like I didn't really add any specific location I just thought like maybe they're walking around but then some people were like hey maybe it was like they're at the opera and I'm like oh oh my <laughs> god because Kim is gonna be on security detail so they're gonna good. be like in the same place and Kim's gonna be working there <laughs> that is cool yeah that, that I like that drama but like whatever it is there's definitely gonna be drama and, and action I think yeah I want to get into that after the king and queen scene because okay. my one of my comments was about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So now um, she goes, steps away, and starts leaving and headed towards the secret doorway. And he's like, "Another thing." She stops. He says, "Don't forget your mission. The fourth wants your report on the purple hyacinth soon." She says, of course, I'll open the door and leaves. So you betray Kieran. True. I knew it's too good to be true. Okay, okay, hear me out. I think Bella's just gonna give like a bullshit report, you know? (laughs) Kind of like what Kieran would do as an archivist, how he just like does minor details, Mm -hmm. you know? Because I kind of like it's kind of implied that Bella sort of suspects him to be the purple, uh, not to be the purple, to be Loon. And I think mm-hmm. just because Bella knows Kieran um, and they have sort of that relationship going on and she doesn't want Kieran to be gone. I think she says that in like episode 115, like, because then she'll be left alone and she'll mm-hmm. be so bored with all the new people. <laughs> but it's kind of like, you know, she doesn't want him to leave her sort of. And so she kind of has her own incentive to keep him around. So I think he, she will be, um, be sort of just like neutral in the report mm-hmm. I think also because she wants to see for herself where this loon thing's gonna go and how like I that's less baseless speculation but more just I think my interpretation of what Bella would want to see are you suggesting that um are you saying that from uh from your interpretation that you think it's possible for Bella to form a loon alliance, a balloon, if you will. I think, yeah, I think she could like <laughs> join. I think she would join Loon later on if she saw that it would fit her own purposes. But mainly that kind of like, I think she's intrigued more by Kieran right now and what Kieran's mm-hmm. been up to, because she's like, she she's she points out in episode one fifteen how she's um, sort of curious about why Kieran is still in the Phantom Scythe because. The reason that she perceived Kieran to remain in the Phantom Scythe has been long gone. And so she just, the man intrigues her and she wants to sort of, and so by keeping him around, she can observe him more. Um, and I think just because Bella's that kind of person, I think she also finds his loon shenanigans amusing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to a report filled with the purple hyacinth has a, a very lovely day. He spends his days painting in his room and reading books. I have nothing to report. <laughs> <laughs> that is very interesting. And I hope, I'll, I'll be honest, when they do that report, I actually am partly hoping that she'll say, you know, this is what I got on him. But honestly, he's so hard to trace because that is one thing, like you set up overpowered characters and after that, you're kind of compelled to deliver. So the fact that he's been able to get away relatively unscathed while scaling the walls of Lauren's house, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> you know, I really want there to be some conveyance to me that there is some truth to him being the most fearsome person. And I just want that to still be reinforced. Because mm -hmm. for me, some of the things moving forward aren't going to make as much sense. Um, and this is some of the... Uh, things that there are certain plot points with Lauren that I'm kind of like, ooh, I'm glad they were able to circle it back around and make it work. Cause uh, I don't want that. I really want uh, Kieran's fearsomeness to stay believable throughout all of this because moving forward, he's gonna need a lot of belief. Uh, he's gonna need all those high skills to make getting out of scenarios, which hopefully they do. Uh, believable as well so his disappearing act still needs to work especially since they need to stay undercover as loon so I'm hoping I'm hoping that genuinely there is some uh like gosh darn it I tried to follow him Tuesday but then you know he disguised himself as a coat rack and I was lost <laughs> <laughs> something like that like I need some of those moments so that they so that also the leader is still afraid enough of him or is still respectful enough of him that he'll keep him around and won't beat him up as much because yeah. he's useless to us, bloody and broken. I do kind of worry, <laughs> not really worry, but I do kind of wonder if Bella's gonna follow up on her telling Messenger 4 about um, Lauren and how she, and how Sake got involved with Lauren. In episode 52, she told, uh, the messenger and I wonder like she uh she hasn't seen the messenger since I believe but she does know that Kieran has been trailing along Lauren right and he claims that like he claims that she uh he's with her to um to get more information you know because she's a police officer um so I wonder if Bella's gonna report that mm. when I think it's kind of clear that Bella suspects there's a lot more to that relationship and what I sort of wonder because of that is that if Bella knows what happens to relationships in the phantom size right and she is currently like being inflicted that blackmail I wonder if she would have the guts to be the reason that that same blackmail is once again inflicted inflicted on Kieran when she knows what has already happened in Kieran's mm. past right I think I guess that's the little bit of honor that she has I would expect her like I don't expect her to feel bad for the people she murders but I do expect her to, to relate to that <laughs> yeah so I I really hope and also I just I don't think she would report that because I think again she would sort of understand the position that Kieran's in because again her relationship to Darcy and I think that would be like sort of a common ground for her like yeah like it it would benefit me a lot to report you on this because I want to be the number one assassin and I want that position that you have 
but I also understand what it's like so I'm not going to because <laughs> also yeah. she, she probably understands what's going to happen to her if he finds out that she was the one to snitch about Lauren yeah I don't think he, anybody want what's coming next yeah, yeah. yeah he Same. could snitch on Darcy so mutual mm-hmm. interest to not snitch on each other mutually assured destruction <laughs> right yep all right so speaking thinking of destruction and um we go to the castle and we have i was very surprised we have the king and the queen in their bedchamber and the king is wearing the goofiest nerdiest kingliest nightdress it is really cute he looks great i love his little slippers i know right they have a beautiful bedroom I'm, i have to say like i want to read in my bedroom now and i'm like hmm, i really like this <laughs> Yeah, and it took me a while to recognize Elizabeth because she just yeah, looks same. different. She mm-hmm. looks more, I mean, she looks less condescending and nasty, just even in her look. Yeah. You know? She's not like doing the whole eyebrow thing, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> like the high eyebrow. And the... You did that so well. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I, see it, I see it. Oh, you, you got to do a Queen Elizabeth uh, cosplay now. You know, I, I wouldn't mind. I could play her. <laughs> yeah, if I had to choose a character. So um, she is at the dressing table, like brushing her hair, and she says, Dawson's idea is preposterous. How can we stoop so low? And that's the idea of negotiating with, you know, terrorists. <laughs> and she says, Your father will be rolling over in his grave. And King Philip is looking very contemplative. He's like, My father is the reason this whole thing even started, Elizabeth. The things <laughs> they won't back down no matter what we do. And then Queen Elizabeth says that her Queen Elizabeth David, she's like, why don't we get rid of them once and for all? Attack them in their underworld. Give them a blow they wouldn't be able to recover from. And then the king is like, I'm getting up. We've known for a while they found a way to infiltrate the ancient ruins of the city and made them their headquarters. Maybe that's also where they're hiding their explosives and we kill two birds with one stone. Okay, ancient ruins. I didn't know there were ancient ruins in our hollis, but cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, Oh, sorry. Hmm. It kind of just reminds me that I'm pretty sure that F. F. Mary's, the writer, has said in the past that uh, Art Hollis is based off London, which is kind of clear in its sort of geography and layout, but also it's based off Paris. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of reminded me, like, you know, the Paris mm-hmm. catacombs. Mm-hmm. The French catacombs, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, King Philip says, we've talked about this already. It's mostly pointless and dangerous to attack them there, even more so if they're hiding explosives. The access to those catacombs was shut off since the war over five centuries ago. Some parts were destroyed, others were sealed and used as foundations when the city was rebuilt. We don't know what the Phantom have done with it since not only is an uncharted territory for us, but a violent confrontation there could make anything above it collapse. So, you know, King Philip, I have to say, like this whole episode just shows me, you know, we, we didn't know too much about him. He was a little bit neutral, but now like he does care about the people. Like he doesn't want his people to, and his city, you know, to be destroyed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this line especially, like, I was kind of surprised by that because a long time ago, a really long time ago, like, I'm pretty sure, like, fall of 2020, uh, there was a theory that this was kind of like, I think, when the tunnel theory was really just coming into its formation around that time. And as you know, the tunnel theory was true. It uh, was canon. Um, And around that time, people were like, hey what if you know the climax of the story is 
the tunnels get flooded like the ps floods the tunnels and so that weakens like the foundation of the city and then everything just collapses on it you know mm-hmm. and i was like and on it, that's what this kind of reminded me of because i feel like i feel like explosions all around the city that would be kind of a lot and i don't know if the fantasy could pull that off but i feel like you could definitely flood the city a lot more easily especially if they have it like mapped out you know they know that goes deeper because Artolis is right on water like a uh, river goes through it and then it's mm-hmm. it literally has an ocean coast mm-hmm. <laughs> yes um i think I've, I've talked about this in the episode uh, 42 i don't remember the one where i talk about the no it was 38 we're talking about the the books that that Kieran, you know, I'm sorry, that Lauren takes out in Kieran's apartment. And one of them is the Batman book where the Joker is planning on using the city's tunnels to administer poison to everyone, to poison the water system and kill everyone. So yeah, so I am totally on board with that. <laughs> it's also kind of funny. I was thinking about that because Mindy, I was thinking about like, you know, Catacombs, Paris, uh, Victor Hugo. And I was thinking about that. Uh, and I was kind of, and then the, you know Batman. Uh, spoilers for Bat for the most recent Batman movie, um, but in that movie, the city also gets flooded. So I was like, mm-hmm. okay, Verbal Heights definitely was inspired off that movie because it came way too late. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, um, well, maybe they helped write the Batman movie. Yeah, <laughs> I just you know I think when they were writing Purple Hyacinth back in like 2018, 2019, I think that they were actually inspired by the 2022 batman movie i don't know about the rest of you guys but... <laughs> time travel is a thing mm-hmm. just yeah. scroll down the credits and see like their names tagged in it <laughs> contributors yep. so, mm-hmm. so now elizabeth is um you know it's, it's so funny because i love like what she says is very much like I feel like people have this this interaction a lot where they like really want something to happen and they like haven't thought about it practically. So she's like, mm-hmm. we can do it without careful preparation, obviously. We can send in more spies, have them map out the underworld and prepare our soldiers accordingly. So this is like, the this is the voice of an optimist, right? So someone who's like, no, 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 we can get it done. We can get it done. I'm a little oh, bit like I'm that. optimist. <laughs> I, I wouldn't drag optimist down with her no. stubbornness. Okay, just, just in the approach. Okay, fine. Optimist, I, I basically, I've, I've learned to equate optimism with risk-taking and like, it's a certain way of like approaching life where you're like, no, it'll just work out. We can do it. And Philip mm-hmm. is much more of a realist. And he's like, no, they've had years to set up their defenses. All the hounds we've sent there were either killed or barely made it back. So interesting. They use the hounds mm-hmm. to try to uh, spy. And don't forget that they've got more spies in our ranks than we do in theirs. They might know what we're trying to do before we'd even formulate a proper plan. So yeah, Philip is, he knows his stuff. He's not like going to just jump into this. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really interesting how Lisbeth kind of, she kind of jumps straight to like the violence, you know, <laughs> like, um, we'll just, she's like, sorry, I'm, you know, she's like, we'll just go straight in, you know, jump right into the midst of battle. And again, as many of you were saying that Philip was like, um, no, we can't do that because it's not realistic. And it's just kind of like an interesting dichotomy between her and Dawkins because Elizabeth, she immediately chooses like the physical action, whereas um, Dawkins chooses negotiation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a violent person. <laughs> and um, yeah, so much so she literally just slams this bottle down and she's like, no, her brush, sorry. And she's like, don't you think we've let that vermin populate in our city long enough? 
even if half the city collapses, which you wipe out the criminals once and for all. Yeah, she makes it very clear what she's willing to give up in order to get rid of the phantom wow. size. That's crazy. Uh, in the house. <laughs> we we honestly need a character like her in this midst, though, because she serves a very important role of uh, being the other extreme of the phantom side of, you know, win at any cost. And at the end, it's gonna, no matter who wins, it's gonna be uh, an analysis for every major character in there, for every character in there of, okay, this is what we got. What did it cost us? Was it really worth the cost? Um, and it's interesting to see the comparisons between a lot of the Phantom Side characters and just the whole operation and premise of the Phantom Side, like, oh, we're just gonna murder everybody until we get all the peace and love and happiness we want. And somehow <laughs> that's gonna happen. Um, and likewise with her, I'm just gonna murder everybody and somehow that's gonna manage to make me feel safer. It's not, um, you know, she's never gonna feel safe, um, you know, and truthfully, by virtue of her position, there's always some, like you're, like you're saying, Mindy, some elemental risk. Um, but, you know, yeah. In this case, it's interesting that uh, Bella's pointing out fighting fire with fire. Well, look at Lizbeth. She's trying to fight fire with fire as well. And ultimately, Phantom Side is playing the whole game of fighting fire with fire, sort of. So, um, yeah. <laughs> here let's lose the very thing that our jobs are for right to, you know thank god her. she's not in power <laughs> you know <laughs> give it give it queen's a bad name all right yeah <laughs> queen's bad name out here stop it lizbeth <laughs> but yeah after this chapter massive respect for philip like it was kind of he's kind of growing on me because like I kind of like before this season I kind of saw him as like you know he's kind of pointless puppet leader you know Dokken and Lisbeth are the ones who are actually ruling but no in this chapter he really like he kind of edged it a little bit before but in this episode like he really puts his foot down on Lisbeth and I'm like go king mm -hmm. <laughs> yes he becomes an actual character it's great yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I'm you. Proud of <laughs> you know and it's interesting because I thought that Elizabeth would gaslight him this whole time mm -hmm. so but the way she talks to him she's not manipulative she's she's very direct she's you know mm -hmm. she is treating him like a person like in other episodes I feel like she was a little more not like gaslighty and I thought she would be doing that here but she is treating him with the respect like I'm talking to a person and I'm trying to convince you and like I'm just being honest about my opinions right which are like crazy but like I'm just telling you like it is and I, I appreciated that and the fact that later on mm -hmm. in the episode she's able to even make a concession to him is like their relationship is doing much better than I thought it was. <laughs> I know, right? It's kind of weird when one of the healthiest relationships in this comic is between the corrupt queen like, oh, and then <laughs> the kind of corrupt king. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> eh, I think by virtue of their privilege, they are both uh, demonstratively out of touch. You can see that in some of the ways they phrase things and some of their reactions. Yeah. Right. But I totally co-sign with you, Mindy, about how, like, you have a completely different perspective of him after this episode that, you know, okay, when he does tell Takan something that, um, you know, he does really actually mean that, you know, um, he's, he's being political, not just for the sake of policy, but also for the sake of, you know, 
trying trying to figure out what's going to work best, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. So, and he, um, you know, protests against what she said. And she's like, like I said, it's pointless. Elizabeth stands up. And again, we see this beautiful nightgown for saying it's like very elegant and. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. You know, I never thought I would want to see the king in a white nightdress, but I'm happy I did. <laughs> it's, the sleeves are beautiful. Like the, the cuff sleeves, gorgeous. <laughs> Nothing looks bad. <laughs> yeah, so he's like, destroying their hideout will not erase them all. It may be their headquarters, but it's not strong. Uh, it's not storing all their people or supplies. Even if we kill them, their ideas and claim will remain. So the fact that I think he he's just saying, the fact that he says claims, that's uh, giving them legitimacy. Like he recognizes that their claims are legit, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And he says, they started gaining the sympathy of our people despite scaring them. Dokken is right in that regard. And she looks back at him and she's like, mm. <laughs> excellent <laughs> child. And, you know, like, she knows he's right and she doesn't want to admit it. But she does. Mm-hmm. Like, that's one thing we do need to consider, I suppose. Which, again, credit to her. Like, she may be a psychopathic, maniac, violent lady, <laughs> but, like, she is able to admit, yeah, you know, you're right. And he continues, he's trying to silence them and destroying their underworld is not going to put an end to it. Rather, it might drive our people to insurrection. She's like, yes, thank you. <laughs> My father was able to get rid of the snapdragon because they were much less numerous and influential. We cannot do the same thing with the Phantom Sight this time. So I guess he doesn't know that the Phantom Sight is an outgrowth of the Staff Dragon. That's the impression yeah. I'm getting. But I don't know. It's kind of weird. Like, I wonder if he condemns his father for what he did with Snapdragon. Because yeah. that was sort of like what Lisbeth has been going for. And Lisbeth is sort of more of a predecessor to Edward than Philip is to Edward. <laughs> um, because Lisbeth was like, yeah, we'll just like, infiltrate them you know we'll get rid of them through like infiltrating their bases and that's kind of what the secret service did under edward with snapdragons they massacred them in the in the printer shop um and so like i wonder like would philip choose that option if it were a viable one because here he's like we can't do that because you know the panda scythe is more numerous um or yeah because i think he's just explaining things to her yeah that was not a good idea i kind of like i just wonder where he would side it or like what his opinions would be if you know the ps were some were a group more like snapdragon because at this point the fandom size has festered for so long that they're just ingrained within the city and so Lisbeth, the old solutions on how the royals dealt with uh such groups although they were peaceful groups at that time uh was a lot more direct and violent and it's kind of weird how they or i guess kind of ironic how they used the violence against the peaceful groups but now they're in a situation where they have to use um more peaceful means against the violent group and right. I, I still support <laughs> peace over violence i'm not really yeah. there's this quote that i can't remember a very famous quote um that you know when you when you something like you when you see. when you cut off all options to solve a problem peacefully, you force mm. a problem to solve itself violently, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this is one of those moments where I never noticed that quote, and I think that's so stinking true, though. 
they did use violence to end the peaceful groups. Well, no wonder, you know, Phantom Scythe is just second generation Snapdragon. Because you take one look at that and like, all right, I did it the peaceful way. You're killing me. I'm going to make you stop that. And I'm going to yeah. kill you instead. Because now I'm scared. It's like, there we go. And here yeah. we are in a cycle. Because, yeah, it is it is kind of true. Like, the socialist groups, they started off peaceful. You know, they didn't harm anyone. They, they were championing um, what a lot of people would consider human rights. So, like, that being like access to healthcare, that being access to education, um, and that being access to like, you know, a sturdy living place. Um, And the monarchy took that as a threat. And so they responded violently. And because, as you're saying, because they responded violently, the Snapdragon was pushed to violence. And now, uh, the monarchy is dealing with the repercussions of their own violence. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I like that this is being illustrated to us now as well, because it makes the comments in that meeting with the apostles and the leader make a little bit more sense. Because at first mm-hmm. I was kind of like, this sounds really corny and like a little bit of a time jump here. I feel like I missed something now catching up with this as a reader. I don't feel like I've missed as much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so now we get to the crux of the issue Elizabeth looks away and she's like so you want to cooperate with them and he says I'm starting to consider it yes they've become too unpredictable and is this this panel no uh, who knows what they're capable of doing if they start a revolution they could attack us here directly or go after Arthur to blackmail us once you do root a baby point <laughs> picture of him looking so cute and Elizabeth shows a very human side. And she's like, I know we've been protecting him as much as we can, but the thought that they might harm him haunts me every day. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nice to see. I feel like this is, oh, sorry. I feel like this is foreshadowing a bit, you know, <laughs> uh, a little concerned, but yeah, I, I do like how Elizabeth does have a soft spot for Arthur. Like that's kind of how you get to her. Mm-hmm. Like, hmm. yeah. I don't fully sympathize with her because she is still a shitty person, but you know, I can appreciate that she has this more human side. I think that's what I like. That's how human beings are in real life, right? Like I'm saying even Hitler, you know, had i I'm sure he what was it, he had a dog or something. Like everyone has, you know, something. So it's that's how what's what it means to be human. <laughs> I find it interesting too, like this panel actually threw me a little bit, and this is the one that actually gets me thinking a lot out of the episode is interesting choice of words they didn't say ransom they didn't say they didn't just say worried about him hurting them they said blackmail blackmail meaning that there's some sort of secret surrounding the implication is that there's some sort of secret surrounding arthur that people don't know about yet that would be used against them so that oh. all right so now he puts his hand on her shoulder and it's a nice sympathetic moment and he says me too Elizabeth it seems like we might have a chance to avoid a civil war for the sake of our people and the future of our Hollis we should take it and she's looking down contemplating you know through her sheath of hair and she's like fine okay wow that's mm-hmm. a lot of credit once again. 
to be able to admit, you know, and like concede defeat takes a, takes an emotional strength. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd say we'd see, like, it's interesting to see, like, out of all the characters that I thought would get like an arc, it would not have been Queen Lisbeth. I think we were going to see like kind of a steady trajectory there and pretty vague and on the sideline. Honestly, I pegged her as maybe being the leader. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if that theory's yeah. out of the running yet. No, but... Miranda, I said that too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I don't know if that theory is out of the running yet. She could be a really great actress. You never know. Um, or just be so blinded by something else that she doesn't care. But in this scene, I have to say, we almost see a complete arc. Like this is a complete like beginning to end story with the two of them that we didn't know we had and also kind of sort of needed um mm-hmm. you know again like you were saying the one healthy relationship in this it's like okay yeah this is this is realistic human behavior this is realistic conversation mm-hmm. um and it's so funny to think that in a story so full of all these personalities that are you know very self-centered and very arrogant and very you know not so confident we have two people very humbly again laying like you said Mindy out the practicalities of a situation and actually evaluating things from a give and take and from a collective perspective because even though Lizbeth is kind of a little bit more self-centered when it comes to you know she's thinking of her child she's thinking of her station and her husband's station um, and she's thinking of the nobles you know, at least she is still thinking of a collective there. Um, it might not be the better of the two options from the perspective of almost everyone else, but <laughs> it is more than one person that she's thinking about, right. which is more than we can say for a lot of the other characters in here. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that also, we were talking about character design earlier, and now I'm like noticing this. It's kind of like she has her hair down, right? And it's definitely a much more intimate and relaxed scene between the two of them. You know, they're not wearing anything fancy. Really. Well, the nightgowns are still kind of fancy, but it's not like, you know, bejeweled or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the nightgowns, you know, they're yeah. functional. And she, as you guys were saying earlier, you know, it's weird seeing her with her hair down, but it's like definitely more relaxed, more casual between them. And, and yeah it's it's personal and that's how you kind of get to Elizabeth is through her son right which is also personal so mm-hmm. yeah it's nice to see like the, the deeper side of them so yeah King Elizabeth turns away and he says I've been thinking that Redcliffe's wall might be a good setting for the negotiations like Dawkins says his philanthropism um, makes him well appreciated by the public and his participation would be a good asset to have However, we need to know if we can trust him beforehand. Like, good call, King. Good call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, the, and the Queen's like, already on it. I've already <laughs> asked Nira to get closer to him. She'll Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> He's oh, like, boy. Good. And boom, boom, exciting stuff. Yeah. I, I have a lot to say on this, but I'm not sure if we want to finish up before we just completely dump all our thoughts. Yeah. let's finish before we jump because we're yeah. already jumped. <laughs> we're so close <laughs> we're just we're chomping at the bed man um wait so does that mean does that mean no one else has anything to say we'll finish we'll finish and then we'll share uh are we done with the panels or is that yeah, it? that's it uh, oh my god oh, okay oh, we'll oh, we are. oh my god Great. perfect <laughs> i know okay 
for whatever reason it feels unfinished after that now that's a cliffhanger <laughs> yeah <You know? laughs> okay so Darcy's gonna be at the okay I want to say that my first thoughts is that like Bella and Darcy they're gonna be in the same place because Bella's escorting Redcliffe right and Darcy's literally tasked with getting closer to Redcliffe so she's gonna try and hang around Redcliffe um so that means the two are inevitably inevitably gonna meet and then we get an awkward date from them um and I also commented this on the episode I was like this entire episode is setting up a Bella and Nera accidental day at the opera house and I'm here for them to be frustratedly gay around each other well oh, well everything else goes to shit and Lean has a hell of a night trying not to get exploded again uh-huh. <laughs> yeah we got two top comments that's pretty cool yeah mm-hmm. I was impressed I was like oh shit I was not expecting that but you know oh what was all- worthy it was worthy yeah thank you it was definitely worthy out of all the episodes i will gladly take two top comments on the, <laughs> right. on the one that sets bell rc back up together um <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's funny because i like you're like oh this will be a date i'm like this will be like an explosion of anger <laughs> <laughs> like i don't know about date if it's the right Unintended. word ah! <laughs> oh my gosh can i just say like this ending summary of statements like oh baby red cliffs ball is gonna be a great place to parlay with phantom side i'm like oh it's a trap oh my gosh you're totally gonna do it but don't do it bad ideas all the bad ideas all the bad ideas you know are bad ideas <laughs> go I'm ahead so go ahead with this foreshadowing who <laughs> Oh, I yeah. want to see what Sandman has planned. Like, what is he going to do? I'm very excited. That is really exciting. I can't wait to see what the heck does Mrs. Green do? What mm-hmm. does she do in her blue hair and her blue coat and her awesome lip ring? Mm-hmm. I'm going to find out what Miss Green's got going on. Yeah, I got to say, like, I'm really excited to know and surprise for, again, that Bella and Redcliffe <laughs> Darcy meetup because like right was literally gonna be like third wheeling them but like because the thing with that is that we still don't really know a lot about Darcy particularly when it comes to the phantom side like we don't know how much about Bella she knows like what whether she knows that Bella's in the phantom side or not so we don't know how much Darcy may know from Bella telling her about the phantom side or if Darcy even knows about um how Redcliffe is the apostle and how or how uh, Bella has been like abused by him, you know, and manipulated by him and groomed by him. I and think so, she would know. No, sorry. Yeah, we me. just we don't know if Bella has ever told her any of those things, and so it's a bit of a wild card with her. She probably does know that Redcliffe is like you know he runs the circus and Bella's circus performer, so they have that relationship. But we just don't know if she knows how far that relationship goes, and so it's gonna be a very I hate to say that's going to be funny, but it's going to be hilarious. Radcliffe is going to be trying to suss out Bella, and if Bella still has feelings for Darcy, right? He's going to be like really suspicious of her and watching her the whole time. Um, Bella is going to try and act normal around Darcy, and they may even have to act like they're not supposed to know each other 
right? Because this may be like the first time actually like meeting in a situation where like Rycliffe would be around and where he should supposedly know about it. Um, and so like they might be pretending that they don't know each other. They're all going to know that they all know each other. Um, and Bella's going to try and like keep Neighbor probably away from Redcliffe because Redcliffe has that threat on Neighbor's life. And then Nera is going to be trying to figure out her ex, right? And maybe she's suspicious of Redcliffe the entire time, but she doesn't know. Again, she doesn't know to what that goes to. So it's going to all very contrasting motivations and perspectives. And she's also going to be trying to suss out Redcliffe. So, um, yeah, it's going to be very fun when all of those collide. Yep. I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the rom-com sitcom <laughs> kind of vibe that's going to come from, because I, I think, I actually think it's reasonable to assume that uh, Nara has some information. I mean, if they have an established relationship, previous intimate relationship, it's going to come up in conversation that, you know, maybe not necessarily knowing who is who um, in terms of uh, who's in Bella's life, but she probably at least has some fundamental idea of, you know, her circumstances with the circus and working for Redcliffe and whatnot. Because, I mean, let's face it, when you stumble into your wifey's a uh, very large weapon collection, you kind of have some questions after that. So you're going to get some <laughs> amount of answer. And it's easier to tell at least part of the truth than it is a lie. And, you know, so suffice to say, I think she knows a little bit. And also Nara's a spy herself. So who's to say that's not something that brought them together? Mm-hmm. Oh, we don't know true, how to um, And so uh, I, I'm thinking that she knows a little bit. But what I don't think is I don't think that Redcliffe knows uh, necessarily what Nara Darcy is all about. So it's going to be interesting. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it's not, it's going to be more of like a passive kind of scenario. Yeah, same. Um, And it's not going to be necessarily like a Nara and Will scenario, like, hey, people Mm. trying to get us to date, or I'm just going to fake flirt with you to get information, Mm. which, I mean, I can see that being a possibility to set up the, um, to set up the whole Balarsi dynamic, um, jealous ex dynamic. Mm. Um, I'm hoping they don't do that, but I can totally see there being a lot of uh, surface level, everybody knows something about somebody else, but not everybody thinks that everybody else knows. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be interesting to see um, how that plays out. Um, The other thing is, so Will and Kim are going to be there or is Lockie going to make an appearance? We don't know about Kieran, I don't think. But I think Lauren's definitely going to be there. Did you say she was? like I think she's on duty. It's going to be her first time on duty after. Well, you know, if Lauren's there, then you know Kieran's going to show up just by default. (laughs) Just going to be like, you know, everybody else is hanging out here. I don't want to miss the party. So here I am. Yeah, Um, I think. Oh, sorry, please go. No, no. Okay. I think uh, Lauren might be on the ground, you know? Um, so she'll be as a cop and then if they wanted to pull Kieran into it it could be like you know they realize that Redcliffe is going to the party and Lauren had an off comment a while back that she wanted to get to know Redcliffe more to look into Redcliffe or to look into Mm -hmm. more and so she might get Kieran on that 
And then, oh my God, if we bring Kieran into the situation and Bella's also kind of be going through back doors and whatever to kind of sneak in, they run into each other. And then if Kieran realizes the situation with Darcy also being there, okay, it's going to be like, again, pretty like chaotic, but then it's going <laughs> to get pretty serious. But I tell you, I'm going to be laughing my head off the entire time. Oh, it's going to be hysterical. <laughs> No it's matter what great. happens, there's going to be some humor from this that's going to be very enjoyable. Yeah, I, I'm expecting a lot of like, sort of like the silent talk to each other where people just like scream at each other through their eyes, sort of. <laughs> or it, it's like, kind of uh, like Lauren and Kieran on that yeah. roof, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> where, but it's that with like all the characters. Um, on a more serious note and less funny note though, if Will and Darcy are in fact going on a date, to this ball or not to this ball to this play um mm. and if Bella see if Bella and Redcliffe like see that date and Redcliffe knows like he recognizes Darcy and he's like hey, yeah that's the woman that you were into right I feel like he could use Darcy's relationship with Will against Bella to be like yeah she doesn't need you anymore right like ah, nasty I could totally see him do that by the way because so many people that have been nasty yeah, I also I also said this before. Um, I'm like almost certain that because uh, Bella, Nera, and Redcliffe are all basically going to be in the same room together, I'm like very certain that Bella is going to like reach for her knife at some point because Redcliffe's going to make some off comment and she's going to be she's going to reach for a knife. She's not going to pull it out, but she's going to like her hands going to like move towards it. Mm-hmm. And oh, I'm waiting nice. for it. It'll be a nice panel. <laughs> yeah i like that i like this panel predictions not necessarily predicting what the plot's gonna be but what shots you're gonna see <laughs> wow we're getting specific here yeah <laughs> what i don't know what's gonna happen i don't have to feel from the next episode yeah. <laughs> panel predictions i just know there will be drama yeah drama. i'm so hyped i i don't think i felt this excited for what ph was bringing in for a little while but yeah feeling suitably hyped for the next few episodes it's gonna be so much it is so many bombs (laughs) dropped in one episode man Mm -hmm. they didn't even need a kieran a kieran appearance kieran cameo (laughs) and that you know that's a sign of a good a good series too is Mm -hmm. now it can carry itself without the main characters Mm-hmm. and that's yeah. really great agreed um yeah one of I feel like this entire podcast just like sort of exemplifies like my love for Bella and it's really like this is why like Bella is my favorite character because there's just so many facets to her and I think you know she has so many like the potential of all the dynamics with all the other characters I like thinking about it you know and yeah I had a ton of fun I had a ton of fun recording this podcast you know um, this was in depth it's funny because yeah. people are like, oh, there's not so much going on. I'm like, no, maybe there's also there's so, so much going on. There's so much subtext. Like over two hours already. Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. It has been. Yeah. That's like very in depth in Bella, into Bella and her motivations, and, and also into Redcliffe. So, yeah, that's, I think, yeah. a lot, I can't wait. lot of psychological analysis. A lot of relationship comparisons, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, comparisons of dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited for Bella's two worlds to collide of Radcliffe and Darcy. Like 
I get so excited just thinking about it because you know I Darcy and Radcliffe are going to be like oh my god it's so nice to meet you for the first time <laughs> whatever like they're going to be so pleasant with each other and meanwhile Radcliffe's going to be like I know who you are Nabella and um Nera as you were saying like she probably knows a bit about Radcliffe so she's going to be like you little fucker <laughs> for everything that you've done <laughs> he's like walking down the aisle in his fancy outfit and she's like puts her foot there she's like oh I'm so sorry I didn't, I didn't see you there oh, did you fall on your face what, how clumsy of me oh what and is then, she yeah, she her she didn't hurt your earring <laughs> right she like spills her champagne oops I'm sorry. yeah she like just completely knees him in the chest it's like oh my bad <laughs> she likes you know throws her opera glasses behind her and then accidentally pokes him in the eye. So oh, I didn't know you were there. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't see you there. <laughs> so you were yeah, coming up with all worry, these wonderful- Your hair's still good. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, I think we should end this because I am super exhausted, but this was- I'm about to fall asleep. I know, I've been watching you also. <laughs> I'm hanging on by a thread, man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, ladies, it was so much fun. It was a great episode. It's like some really good analysis. I'm so happy that we, we got to dig deep, you know, dive into, as they say, any addition to the kishkas of these characters and to the livers of these characters. Dive <laughs> deep. Yum, yum, yum. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. To my current patrons, Susie, Lady Libris, Lily, Jenny, Molly, Veronica, Emily, Joe Rochelle, Saucy Tacos, and Rose, Alexa, Misty, Joanne, Melda, Esther, and Martini People, Emily, Jane, Jen, Erin, Kay, Lily, Beckett, Daranda, Christine, Sadie, Kelly, Teresa, Mrs. Nostalgio, Jen, Tatiana, Louisa, and Rachel. Your support is truly appreciated.